Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and just generally cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. Today's topic is why we need compliance officers now more than ever. The workforce that emerges from the combination of stay-at-home orders and the financial crisis will undoubtedly be very different than ever before. Each of us are dealing with unprecedented levels of stress, anxiety, and uncertainty. These external stressors can cause people in positions of trust to suspend good judgment and make some truly terrible decisions, putting themselves and their organizations at risk in the process. Indeed, decision-making under stress and unreasonable time pressure can be a perfect storm during which business ethics may be given short shrift. Joining me today is Richard Bistrong. Richard is the CEO of Frontline Anti-Bribery, through which he conducts corporate workshops and keynotes to sales teams, leadership groups, including boards and C-suite executives, and compliance teams, internal audit, finance, and human resources. Richard's career path veered wildly from being a highly successful international sales executive to when he was targeted and charged with violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. He then cooperated with the FBI in an undercover capacity in the notorious SHOT Show case. After his cooperation was concluded, Richard was incarcerated for 14 and a half months and released in December 2013. Richard is now a highly sought after speaker, compliance trainer, panelist, and columnist, and the recipient of numerous awards for his compliance thought leadership and training videos. Welcome, Richard, and thank you for joining me today. Scott, it's a pleasure to join you and the FTI community. Thank you. Well, thank you. So, Richard, you've been writing lately about why we need compliance officers now, possibly more than ever before. What is it about right now that makes chief compliance officers especially important? Well, Scott, and once again, thank you for the kind and generous uh, introduction. I think that the first part of my response relates to your introduction in that right now, the workforce is facing stress, uncertainty, anxiety about what the future of business might be, what the future of work might be. And as you shared in the introduction, what we understand is that kind of crisis mentality can lead to three types of thinking, me, me, and me, where we can have an increase in workforce misconduct, where people think they need to just take care of themselves, and a decrease in employee engagement. But I don't think this has to be a perfect storm. So I think right now, speaking as former commercial Richard Bistrong, that for compliance officers and their teams to be proactively and affirmatively addressing this stress, right? If we know it's there, this is an opportunity to reach out to the workforce to address this stress, to get people to slow down and to think about the long term 
And Scott, I think that if this communication is done effectively through multi-channels, it doesn't always have to be a webinar or a Zoom room. Sometimes it could just mean picking up the phone and asking someone that you know is in a very risky market or marketplace and ask them how things are doing. And I think that if compliance teams are proactively addressing this stress, they can come out of this crisis with relationships with the workforce and bonds with the workforce that were stronger than when this started. So speaking as my former commercial self, I think that's a huge reason why the voice of compliance needs to be particularly high right now or loud right now. Well, that's a terrific point you make. You know, in your writing, I really appreciate how you reference other people's thought leadership, reference to some of the topics that you cover in, in your own. And a recent article, you referenced Max Bazerman's article entitled, A New Model for Ethical Leadership. And in it, you talk about the importance of deliberative thinking. What is deliberative thinking and why is it important in times of crisis? So the article by Max Bazerman was really referring to the iconic work of Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And, and by the way, in all transparency, I've read so many articles about this book, and it now sits about two feet from me. So I am going to read the entire work. But what Bazerman is talking about is the system one, which he describes as it's our intuitive, it's fast, it's automatic, it's effortless. It's pretty much how we spend the majority of our day in system one thinking. But he also talks about system two thinking as being more deliberative, slower, effortful, and logical. And what he shares is that the deliberative system leads to more ethical behaviors. And I think that right now, you know, compliance leaders really need to be elevating that you know, we, yes, there's going to be a need for speed as we come out of this crisis and we try to resume operations, but that doesn't mean compromising controls. And I think that right now that the workforce is really going to be, and I remember working two years where there was like a rapid market decline, and it was all about how do I regain recapture market share. So I think that compliance leaders have a particular challenge right now to get the workforce to slow down a little bit so that what's immediately important doesn't overwhelm what's fundamentally important. And, you know, that's not going to be easier. It may not make someone popular, but it's also a time to remind the workforce as compliance leaders that, hey, I'm here to make sure that you as an individual and this organization as a whole isn't left with a regulatory crisis after our current health and economic crisis has passed. So let's slow down a little bit and think about our decision-making. Maybe there are some elements of our program that can be paused right now. You know, this is probably not the time to double down on your T&E policy manual. But on the other hand, inconvenience and the need for speed isn't a reason to circumvent controls. Again, I don't know that it's going to be easy and it's going to mean, I think, 
being both virtually present in the lives of the workforce and maybe virtually intervening from time to time, just to remind everyone that, you know, this is still about long-term sustainable and ethical business practices. I think those are really good points. I think in a lot of areas of compliance, slowing things down, just take enough of an opportunity to pause the beat to really evaluate the risks and the liabilities that could be implicated around a given you know, transaction or scenario is makes all the difference. And Scott, I mean, that's a great point because we know that our risks are changing and new risks are emerging. You know, a year ago, I wasn't hearing a lot in our compliance discourse about donation risk or market manipulation or bribery to be declared as an essential business in certain countries. We just weren't talking much about that. So even though our risks are changing, the organization's risk appetite is not changing. So keeping that aligned, I think, is is not going to happen on its own. And that requires slowing down and thinking about, okay, you know, these are new emerging risks. How are we aligning with the business to make sure that we're properly addressing them? No, it's very true. So Richard, I've said this to you before, but I, I am firmly believe this to be the case and I, I really marvel at it. You have a, an uncanny ability to relate your experience with the criminal justice system to the everyday problems that compliance officers face. It's, it's really remarkable. And when you first were released from prison, your probation officer, who you likened to a compliance officer, nixed a public speaking opportunity for you fairly early on in your probation, which should have involved travel for you. How does that anecdote relate to the fact that businesses, governments, and schools are under intense pressure to get back to work. And that wasn't a story that I would have related to our current environment until I really reflected back on it. But just to set some context, you know, I get home from prison in December 2013. I'm diving into the compliance discourse, you know, very exciting experience. And I get invited to keynote at what was then a Dow Jones Global Compliance Symposium. You know, Scott, my bags are packed. I am out the door to D.C., but, oh, yeah, I have to call my probation officer because I'm traveling outside the district. You know, by the time I got this call, you know, number one, I had a stent procedure, right? So I had a heart issue when I got home from prison. I was just also getting over a MRSA infection. So I'm not in the greatest physical condition to travel. And also, you know, my family needed me, but I'm not thinking about any of that, you know, the stents are working great. Think I'm over this bacteria. My bags are still packed and out the door. And she said, Mr. Bistrong, you're, you're not going anywhere. And, you know, when I saw it at the time, I was totally in system one. And, you know, when she explained to me, you know, you're just home, you know, and we're going to slowly move you back to norm. And part of it is we have to establish trust together. And that doesn't happen in, you know, a couple of months. And I think that situation is very relatable in terms of as markets open up, as we get our wings back, the risk and the hazards of tunnel vision of I need to just get back 
to operations. I need to recapture market share. And we could talk more about this. If, if business leaders aren't setting ethical expectations, people might misinterpret that silence to do what it takes to get things done. So I think what we need is more, you know, and I'm not likening a compliance officer to a probation officer, but the voice is similar and the voice is not so fast. We really need to be thinking about the long term here. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do it. So let's ramp up in a way that's slower and sustainable. So I think it goes back to that system too. And I still thank her for what she did for me, even though I couldn't believe it at the time. And that's great. When you have a voice that's not your own, helping you to think about what's important for the long term, you know, over time, we, we can really appreciate the value that that brings. Yeah, I never in my mind equated the role of patient officer to that of compliance, but maybe it's highly specialized, but absolutely is analogous to that of a compliance officer. It's just a little bit of a different uh, focus in terms of the frameworks that right. they're using. The, but the it's an external voice that is there. And, and, and the same thing with, with my probation officer. It's an external voice that wants you successful, but that also wants you safe. You know, and, and that right now in this crisis environment is just so valuable. It's true. And, and I think it supports your argument that, you know, we, we need compliance officers more now than ever. And, and they are continue to be thrust into these very important roles. You know, listen at our own organization, the person most closely associated with how we as a company are dealing with the stay at home order is our chief compliance officer. Yeah. So it, and, and it makes perfect sense. So the need for speed, as we've been talking about, seems to be a cross purposes for the importance of deliberative decision making. So what strategies should companies implement to ensure that each decision is looked at through that ethical decision-making lens. So this is, I think, a tremendous challenge in a virtual environment because what we have, Scott, is we will have, you know, the virtual huddling, so to speak, of business unit leaders, you know, production managers, sales managers, that are going to be strategizing, you know, for lack of a better term, recapturing or resuming operations. Now, there are going to be risk elements of those conversations. So the question that I ask compliance officers is, is a risk assessor at that virtual table? And I think maybe one of the ways that compliance leaders can get themselves to that virtual table is by sharing with their business peers and maybe even up to the C-suite. Because I think so much of this is not just about, sometimes when we think of compliance, we think of just managing down. I think right now this is also about managing across and maybe managing up is to get your peers to appreciate that right now in this environment, everyone is a risk manager. <laughs> Well, absolutely, you know, and as it should be, because organizations that have the narrow view that compliance begins and ends with the compliance officer, that they're not really exhibiting a very nuanced understanding of what compliance means. 
because no one person can bring an organization to heal, right? In, in order for you know compliance to be truly effective, as that term is defined by the people that matter, the people that sit in judgment as to whether in fact your compliance program is effective, is to what extent it's been operationalized. And that means embedded in the business and it has captured the hearts and minds of you know everybody in that organization and has an operational role. That, that's well said. I mean, just say no makes for a nice anti-bribery wall poster and it's a wonderful aspirational goal. But what does that look like in Asia or what does that look like in South America? And as you well said, how do you operationalize that particularly when new risks are emerging and risks are, they're not emerging evenly. So I think the challenge, Scott, is maybe before this crisis, it was a water cooler conversation or a knock on the door and say, when is your next business unit meeting? Because I you know, want to make sure I get to, to chat with you and your team. You know, How do you do that now when you're not able to just knock on that door or meet someone at the water cooler? I think it goes back to the that virtual intervention and to give everyone an appreciation that, you know, hindsight's going to be pretty harsh in the decisions that we make today. And I heard one regulator speak at a webinar and she said, you know, if a company has an issue right now and they come to me, you know, I'm going to cut them a little slack. But in three years from now, when my successor is here, he or she's not going to cut them any slack. So... I think part of this is, again, giving people a forward-looking appreciation. Today's decisions are going to be judged in, in the harsh reality of hindsight. No, that, that's very true. That's human nature, right? The pandemic isn't always going to be hanging over our head. We're not going to be filtering all of our decisions around it when the risk subsides. But regulatory actions are historical right? No one's necessarily going to map out the infection rate timeline with what was going on in your company at the time, or the extent to which they were working from home or in an office setting. It's not even going to factor into it. That'll be for defense attorneys to bring that into the discourse. So no, no, that's a really, it's a really sage insight. So Richard, the months ahead are going to be uh, a big challenge for compliance officers, even under the best of circumstances, Compliance officers are accustomed to being kind of unwelcome and the messengers of unwanted information. What advice have you got for compliance officers and organizational leadership on how best to convey that expediency often leads to long-term consequences? It's a great question and a great challenge. You know, maybe I tend to remember things that they all start with the same letter a little better. So what I, what I like to share, Scott, is right now, particularly for compliance leaders and control function leaders, it's a time where we need to think about influencing and inspiring just as much as implementing. So I think particularly for control function leaders, you know, it's a time to show empathy for what people are going through. But I think we can be both clear and compassionate, right? 
as to what those expectations are. And, and it goes back. And, and again, I think it's a multi-channeled message and it's not a one and done exercise, but that sort of constant reminder of we want to make sure that no one here is left with that regulatory crisis after we're over our current economic and health crisis. And I think that's something that business leaders and the former commercial Richards can say, I don't want that either. <laughs> so, you know, if we need to align on these things and take a little extra time to make sure that that risk assessor is there before we roll out a new sales plan, before, if we look at the variables that can spark that system one short-term thinking, it's change. I have a new supervisor. I have a new incentive plan. I actually have a new role and a new territory. There's changes in the organizational hierarchy. I mean, any of those things can really spark that short-term shortcut thinking. So I think that, you know, when compliance leaders are just constantly multi-channel and often sharing, look, we just need to make sure before we roll all this out to the field that we're thinking about what are the side effects. All of these changes have side effects. And are we looking to make sure that those side effects align with our goal of ethics and compliance and risk management? And, you know, we, we don't have to slow us down to a halt, but just enough to make sure that we're aligning on that. It's not Slowing things down won't lead to a popularity contest, but I think when compliance leaders are sharing why they're trying to maybe just make sure that these issues are addressed before they're rolled out, that people will have an appreciation. Because we all know, Scott, once we get started, it's a lot harder to cross-correct. I think that's an important behavioral thing to think about as well. No, those are great points. And I think you know, this is where, more so than ever before, the goodwill that compliance officers have built up, that they've invested in across their organization when times were more routine, less like they are now, this is the time to leverage that goodwill and get people to put their trust in the compliance officer, because otherwise disaster is going to follow. You know, Scott, I often share, again, going back to former commercial Richard, that the first time I'm getting an unsolicited call from a compliance leader, I'm thinking, what's up? <laughs> okay, this, this can't be good. And the, so the first time you make that call, you might not get a great reception. If you're, if, even if you're just calling to ask, how are things going? And maybe as a compliance leader, you know, sharing your own struggles through this crisis. Now, the second time you make that call, you know, the person on the other end of that call or video is going to think, okay, this person really does care about my safety and success. And every call after that, there's going to be a bond that is formed. Because what research demonstrates, Scott, is the more we're talking to each other, when we don't have a crisis at hand, the more likelihood I'm going to reach out for help to a voice that's already familiar. And I think if we align with that research and we are proactive, then that goodwill 
will will really come to fruition when it's when it's needed, when there is an issue. You know, these are such you know really important points that you've made. So, Richard, for those listeners who want to continue the conversation with you and stay in touch, what what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, thanks, Scott. So my website is is richardbestrong.com. I finally got my email address straightened out. So it's richard at richardbestrong.com. And uh, Scott, you and I first got to know each other on social media and Twitter. So it's all at Richard Bestrong. And there's such a wonderful social media community around ethics and compliance. So I certainly invite any listeners to connect on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. Heck, I'm even on Instagram now, and there's a there's a robust compliance community there as well. So uh, it'd be a pleasure to continue the conversation. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you today, Scott. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. You know, you shared some terrific insights as always. And, and, and thank you very much for your time today. Well, thanks again, Scott. That was Frontline Annie Bribery CEO and Compliance Subject Matter Expert, Richard Bistrong. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eats Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eats Strategy, when we'll hear from Cleary Gottlieb partner, Lisa Vicenz, and FTI's own Mark Grover, on the little known area of shadow investigations in which accounting firms oversee internal investigations being performed by outside counsel and their forensic investigations counterparts, hoping that those investigations will provide sufficient information for the audit partner to comfortably sign off. If you have an idea for a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeedstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.